millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, hey, I had a good idea and I need to make this work because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this is the last good idea I'm ever going to have. This is the my only chance of success in writing, but it's not. Hi, welcome to Write Off, a podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London, and writing rejection has been a subject close to my heart ever since I didn't manage to sell my own first novel last year. If you're interested, you can hear a little bit more about that in the intro to the first episode in this series. My guest this week is Andy Weir, a fantastically funny and very original novelist, and also a lot of fun to interview. Andy is best known for his book The Martian, a bestseller about an astronaut accidentally abandoned by his crew on Mars and made into a Ridley Scott blockbuster starring Matt Damon. What you may not know is that Andy had self-published that book a few years before it was picked up by an agent and a traditional publisher. And even though it had been wildly successful on Amazon, Andy hadn't even considered trying to find an agent after being rejected by more than 20 agents for an earlier novel in his 20s had left him with a feeling that he simply wasn't good enough. Well, a lot's happened since then, and I think it's fair to say that Andy clearly is and was good enough. He's now promoting his third published novel, Project Hail Mary. Like The Martian, this is a very zippy, funny and inventive book based around a space mission. Andy and I talked about how Project Hail Mary repurposes stuff from earlier failed projects and how negative reviews make him feel. He also has some very funny things to say about how you can tell you're getting better when your friends start criticising you more. You can buy Andy's books in all good bookshops and I've also just set up a link to an online bookstore where you can find books by all my guests. The link is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. So here's Andy. I've been writing since I was a teenager and my first book 
my first full length novel that I finished was in my early 20s. And um, it sucked. But uh, and in fact, I knew it sucked. Like I didn't even try to get that published. I was like, well, that was a learning experience. But was that the theft of pride? No, this was a different one called The Observer. I count myself very lucky that I wrote it and finished it before the days of the internet, really. So it's not out there. No one will find it. (laughs) What was it about and how long did it take you to write it? Uh, It took me maybe two years to write on and off. And it was just basically um, this cookie cutter (laughs) kind of dystopia, rebels fighting against a dystopian government kind of thing. The exact sort of story now (laughs) that I despise and tell everyone to stop writing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a very Star Wars obsessed son, so I do feel like I'm hearing that story on a repeat. Yes, yeah, kind of. It took you two years, and then what did you do with it, if anything? Uh, Nothing, because I I knew that it wasn't very good. Like, I I wrote it, I, 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 once I was done, I was like, okay, I, you know, I, I finished that, and I didn't feel real good about it, but I was like, but hey, I finished a book that was kind of cool. I finished a full-length novel, mm. and I, I felt good about that. But I never tried to get it published. I didn't show it. I mean, I only showed it to like very few people. And what did yeah, they say? And, did they tell you it was bad? Uh, they just said it was okay. <laughs> you know, they were courteous. Broadly speaking, if when you start something and, and you're kind of a little bit better than average, you'll get a lot of praise from your friends. As you get better, those same friends will start comparing you to people who really do this for a living, and then they'll start telling you you suck. (laughs) The truth is you've sucked all along. (laughs) Your friends are just taking it seriously now because you've gotten good enough that you're, you know, that it's reasonable to compare you to... uh, to the to the to the real writers. <laughs> That's interesting and terrifying, I think, for yeah. people who might be listening to this. If your friends suddenly shift from telling you, you, you it's fantastic to telling you you suck, that probably means you have gotten better. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. <laughs> okay, so you didn't do anything with that book, um, right? And, and then what happened? <laughs> Um, I continued writing. I mean, so I was a software engineer this whole time. When I, when I was a teenager, I, I wanted to be a writer and everything. And when it was time for me to choose a, a career, you know, when I was going to college, so I'm like 18 and I'm like, well, what do I want to do here? What, I, I don't need to declare a major, but I mean, the, the requirements that I'm going to take are very different between computer science and lit, right? And so I decided I really want to be a writer, but I also really enjoy having regular meals. So I decided I'd be a software engineer. So I'm like, okay, I'm going for computer science. So I didn't take writing seriously as a profession. You know, I, I wrote kind of for fun. Then uh, in the late 90s, I got laid off from AOL when they merged with Netscape to give you a sort of a, you know, Jewel was on the radio. Uh, <laughs> you know, Britney Spears was very popular at the time. A- anyway, so I got laid off from AOL and I had a really good severance package I ended up with enough money that I figured I could live for a few years without working. So I took three years off and I wrote my next book. What made you suddenly decide to take it seriously? I mean, other than you'd obviously suddenly gain the means to do that. Did you suddenly realize the will to do that had been lurking there all along? I I didn't suddenly realize it. I'd I'd always felt like, hey, I, I really would like to be a writer, but I didn't have the time. And I mean, I would write 
on my own and stuff like that, but I didn't really have the time. But this, when you suddenly get a bunch of money, when you've been broke ass your whole life, you start thinking, well, what can I do with this? I could just save it. I could get a down payment toward a house, like stuff like that. But I decided like, you know what? I've got enough money that I can go several years without having a job. So why don't I take a stab at writing? You know, now I can go full time. I can spend all day working on it or whatever. So over the next three years, I wrote a book. That one was Theft of Pride. And Theft of Pride, I felt like was, I, I unlike my previous one, The Observer, I felt like Theft of Pride was good. And so I uh, set to work trying to get a literary agent. And just like everybody else, I got just rejected across the board. It was a little harder back then because back then you had to buy a writer's guide and look up the addresses of the literary agents and write cover letters and, and stuff like that. Nowadays, most agents have ways for you to submit online. And But yeah, it was just rejection after rejection after rejection. How many agents do you think you sent to? Probably on the order of 20. And back then, I don't know if it was true, but the conventional belief was that you should only talk to one agent at a time. So you'd pitch your stuff to an agent, then wait for the rejection letter, then pitch to the next agent. Wow. So that's a really long process then to get Yep. Through. And also at the time, science fiction was in the 90s, early 2000s, science fiction was sort of a pariah in the literary world. Like I remember the writers, the writer's guide would say like, okay, here's the agency, here are the agents, and here are their comments. They'd say like, oh, you know, we take this, we don't take that, we don't do this, we do that. And like so many of them said, we don't do science fiction. <laughs> I remember one of the uh, one of the entries in the writer's guide for an agency said, we do all forms of fiction except science fiction and Satanism. <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> Is Satanism a literary genre? Yeah, I was also kind of surprised to learn that the <laughs> Satanism is a literary genre, but... What was the feedback like, if you if you can um, cast your mind back to the to those yeah. 20 rejection slips? What sorts of things were they saying? Well, most of them are just form rejections and they don't give you any information at all, okay. right? Which really sucks. Um, but some of them were very helpful and they were uh, legitimate con complaints about the book. Like they said like, well, this book doesn't, uh, you know, some of them were vague, like, oh, this book lacks zing. But some of them were uh, things like, okay, it has sort of a meandering storyline. The pacing is off. The, the, the middle act is, is really slow. Um, these characters are all fairly two-dimensional and they were right. I mean, this was only my second novel, right? They were right in their criticisms of it. Uh, one nice thing though, is being a neurotic kind of self-loathing person. I, I don't, I don't get defensive when I receive criticism. I tend to believe it and get really introspective. So while that maybe makes me a little sensitive. It also means that um, I don't think that my work is like perfect and I you know, refuse to take criticism. I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. Also being a software engineer for so long teaches you that you're never getting it right at first, right? That makes sense. But at the same time, it sounds like you know, you'd always wanted to be a writer and you'd sometimes put that on the back burner, but you know, you'd, you'd been writing short stories and little comic books and things like that for, for a long time. Um, and this is your mm -hmm. second book. Um, yeah, it felt bad. Productively <laughs> internalize that feedback, but was it, was it a depressing time or yes. how did you handle it? <laughs> it was not, 
I, you say I productively internalized that feedback. I'm not sure productively okay. is correct. I, I would just say I internalized it. Like I took it to heart, okay. but at first my feeling was I suck at writing and I will never be good at it. it it's really rough for me. I, I mean, rejection hurts and I'm particularly sensitive to it. I'm a very insecure guy. <laughs> and so it's, it, it was definitely hard for me. I mean, I know the struggle, believe me. Anyway, one of the other bits of uh, feedback I got from uh, theft of pride, which I thought was kind of useless, was it said there aren't enough characters, uh-huh. and I'm like, what? There were actually really only four characters that mattered in the whole book, so it's true. It had a it had a small cast, but I was like, how do I fix that? So I joking, I was joking around with my friends about, yeah, I'm gonna go to every fifth paragraph and add Bob was there too at the end, <laughs> call that a day. <laughs> You're doing something really interesting with the form there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, but um, so I guess I, I, I know exactly what I was doing wrong with my mindset back then. And it might be worthwhile for your uh, listeners to hear this. My problem was I didn't have a lot of faith in myself. And I felt like it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, hey, I had a good idea. And you genuinely did. And, and I need to make this work. Because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this is the last good idea I'm ever going to have. I'm never going to come up with another cool idea for a book like this. Mm-hmm. And so I need to make this work. This is the my only chance of success in writing. Even if I don't become wealthy, I at least want people to enjoy it. And this is my only hope. But it's not. You know, you came up with that idea. You can come up with others. I don't think it's possible for anyone anywhere to just have one idea that's good. If you came up with an idea that motivated you yourself enough to write a book, then that's a pretty good idea. Maybe you didn't execute it well. Maybe you completely dropped the ball on the execution. It takes a long time to learn how to do that right. But you have to learn to kind of divorce yourself from the work and say like, okay, maybe the stars didn't align on this. Maybe this was a good idea executed badly. Maybe um, I could take parts of this and make a different story, which by the way, my next book project, Hail Mary, is that exact process. Oh, right. Which I'll I'll get to in a second. But maybe I just need to set this aside and think of a new idea. And it's hard to believe when you don't have an idea in your head, it's hard to believe that you will eventually come up with something clever. Because you can't just sit there and go like, all right, I'm going to come up with something clever. (laughs) You, You have to... I mean, it comes to you when you're taking a shower or you're taking a walk or you get the kernel of an idea that you expand a little bit, expand a little bit, and then it connects to some other idea you've had in the past. And you're like, oh, these two dovetail together nicely. And then and it starts coming together. Um, so I would recommend to your listeners, don't get married to your, to your work, to, to any given piece. Sure, sure. I think that's really good advice. Did you find it difficult in terms of you were perhaps quite exposed because you'd taken this time off for three years yeah and and presumably people knew what you were doing with that time so was it did it feel kind of humiliating anyway to to have people sort of see you as having taken that time off to write a book and then the book not find an agent or strangely no I didn't feel like embarrassed by it or anything because I knew that it only had a low chance of success and so, you know, when I told my friends about it, I always presented it as like, well, I'm trying this out. Probably won't work, but this is a good time in my life to take these sorts of chances. And so we'll just see what happens. 
so nobody it's not like i went to everybody and i'm like haha losers i'm gonna be a I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publish a book soon and you, you, you can bite me. No, it, it was like, <laughs> there's, there's no shame in, in failing to get into an incredibly difficult industry. I think that's absolutely right. I just know that I certainly felt like I sort of wished I'd never told anyone I was doing it in the first place. Because it would have been easier to sort of scurry back to my writing desk and just try again without the kind of, without the noise of other people's expectation or disappointed expectation or whatever. As I like to say, um, give a man a book, you entertain him for a night, teach a man to write, you give him crippling self-doubt for life. (laughs) Yes, crippling self-doubt, but in your case, a professional writing career, which sounds like a lot of That's true. But I got there in a roundabout way. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so interesting. So you, so Theft of Pride didn't find an agent and you went no. back to being a software engineer. Yep. Then how many years later did you start writing The Martian, which I believe you started writing and very quickly started publishing um, in installments on your website. Is that right? That's right. Um, so let's see. I gave up on Theft of Pride and went back to work, I think in 2002. And I started writing The Martian in 2009. And in the intervening seven years, I was writing other things. I was always writing stuff. And now that the internet was a thing, I decided, okay, well, I'm a computer programmer now. This is my job, but I can still write and I can post things to my website for fun. And so I had a a loyal following of about 3,000 regular readers, which sounds like a lot, but it took me like 10 years to build that up. And that's an, you know, (laughs) an average of one new reader per day. It's like, you know, um, and I was writing all sorts of stuff. I was, I was making comics. I was, um, I was writing short stories. I was writing fan fiction, like Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes fan fiction stuff. And I was also writing some serials, three different serials at the same time. I would just write on whichever one I felt motivated on. And one of those was The Martian. So I would post a new chapter of The Martian about every six to eight weeks. And I'd get feedback from my readers and I would correct science errors because my readers were all nerds. So they'd all tell me when I had mistakes and I'd, I'd get, I, I'd, I'd fix that stuff. And that, that was, I, I never took it seriously. And I also never imagined that this book, which is basically a long series of algebra word problems would ever get mainstream. I, I, I thought I was writing it for this tiny, tiny niche of hardcore science dorks that are my that were my regular readers on my site. You know, these are people who want you to show the math, you know. And and you do. And I actually think it's a remarkable achievement that, I mean, I I am not particularly um, scientifically literate. Um, I'm certainly not astrophysics <laughs> literate. And it's very, very readable and very enjoyable. And I, well, I think you. that comes down to... Um, your character Mark Watney and his and his voice he's a, he's a very funny optimistic but also sort of slightly disparaging guy and he's great fun to be with and I wanted to ask you if like how much you had planned this novel novel because when you're <laughs> delivering something incrementally like that it's you know it's, it's harder to go back and change you know editorial stuff I know you were changing errors that some of your readers told you about but I wondered how how much you had of the story before you started and also how quickly Mark's voice came about. Well Mark's voice came about right away like just I mean the first part that I wrote is the first chapter I mean it was it was very easy for me because it's just basically my own personality 
I mean, Mark Watney is my personality, but take all the bad parts of my personality and get rid of them. Take all the parts of my personality that I like and magnify them. And that's Mark Watney. He's smarter than me. He's funnier than me. He's uh, scientifically minded. He's sarcastic and all that stuff like that. He doesn't have any of my many neuroses. He's the idealized version of me. He didn't write um, a selling book, though. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, so his voice was pretty straightforward. As for planning it out, I had only the barest, like when I first started it, the first few chapters, I didn't have any idea where I was going to go with it. I thought maybe I'd be writing an open-ended serial, like this guy would just be stranded on my for like chapter after chapter after chapter and you know whatever else and I I just see where it took me then I start thinking like okay well this is a closed loop story this is like okay this has to have a def definite ending and so um I came up with like my original idea was that he was just going to be stuck on Mars and he was just going to survive long enough for the Ares 4 mission to arrive on Mars and he was just going to be there at the landing site hi and they were, they were going to be really su surprised but then as I wrote it, I, I, I was like, okay, well, obviously NASA is going to eventually, I mean, they would have to eventually notice that he's still alive. How do you not notice that? I mean, um, and so that's where the story started to come together like that. But at first when I was writing it, I didn't have any intention of having the NASA characters or any of that stuff. And then I came up with that and I'm like, okay, this is really cool. I got to do this. But as for writing it, you say, yeah, as a serial a story I was posting it but I I also told all my readers hey guys you're basically watching me create a book so I'm just giving you fair warning I might go back into earlier chapters that you've already read and make significant changes so I didn't have any problem with making major edits what I would do is I would email everybody and say like hey everybody I know that you know we're on chapter 7 right now but I made a bunch of changes to chapter 3 and so you can either reread chapter three or here's just a list of the relevant plot points from mm. chapter three. Okay. And did you, because actually I think the book is so well structured. It really doesn't feel like you sort of made it up as you went along in a way. It, it feels well, very, I mean, very planned out because these various parts slot together. So actually just basically in The Martian, um, there's a guy called Mark Watney who's an astronaut who's been on a space mission to Mars and he gets stranded there accidentally. They think he's dead. And he essentially works out all these incredible ways to extend his potential life on Mars till the time he hopes someone can come and get him. And he plants potatoes in Martian soil with the help of a bit of Earth soil. He works out how to communicate with Earth. He works out how to make water. It's, it's pretty incredible. But yes, at later stages, we get other people's perspectives as well. So we get the perspective of NASA and we get at some points, we get perspective of some other countries and, and so on. And so that... That type of stuff is, is just stuff that came to you as you went, or is that the type of thing you went back and sort of changed later? It came to me as I went, uh, but also it may look like everything fits together well, but of course in my earlier revisions I had to go, okay, I've decided to go this direction, so now I need to prep for that event with some earlier exposition to the reader and stuff like that. So there, it's not like it just flowed out of me in one continuous stream. I always had to go back and make a lot of changes. And had you yep. done masses of research before you started? Because you're, you know, you're scientifically minded, but you're not an astrophysicist. 
or a book. Correct. Um, so yes, I did a ton of research while writing it. And indirectly, I did a ton of research before writing it, but not for the book, just because I'm that kind of guy. I really enjoy the space program and learning about it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something that's very, very interesting to me. So I started off with much more than a layman's knowledge of it. How did you fit that around your normal job? Because at this point, you were working again, right? Yes. I had recent, In 2009, I lived in uh, the Boston area. And I had moved there from California, which is where I'd lived my whole life before that. And I, I didn't have any friends there. I had moved there for a job and I didn't have any friends there. So I didn't really have anything to do with my life when I wasn't at work. So I guess the, the secret to getting a novel done is to have absolutely no social life whatsoever. <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds so useful. <laughs> so what made you decide once you'd started posting and realizing that it was going down quite well, how come you didn't think to maybe try an agent again? I just didn't believe that I had like the right stuff. I, I had given up, basically. I assumed, well, I'm just not a good enough writer to make it in the industry. So I'll just lurk online, make my little stories to my little audience. That'll be that creative outlet. Ultimately, it wasn't until the book was done and I posted it to Amazon as a self-published novel that an agent approached me and then things really got rolling. Okay, so The Martian was posted um, in increments for how, how long did that? About three years, from 2009 to 2012. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, your readers said, you need to put this on Kindle. Basically, my website is just kind of like ghetto it's just like text you know and so the readers were like hey I'd rather read this as, as an e-reader can you do that so I made an e-reader version posted that to my site and then other people said like hey I'm glad there's an e-reader version but I don't know how to download a thing from the internet and put it on my e-reader can you just post it to Amazon so I can just get it through their system I was like sure and Amazon requires you to charge at least 99 cents. So I charged 99 cents and it really took off. And so the sales were really high. That, that, that's where it kind of like really burst into the, to the mainstream and people were really buying it and it was selling a lot. I was in toward the top of the Kindle bestsellers and stuff. That's when I was approached by an agent. It must've been so incredible. I mean, given that you didn't even want to charge for it initially, what did that feel like? It felt good, but I also didn't really know it was as successful as it was. It's like, oh, I'm selling 500 copies a day. Okay, that seems pretty good, but you know, I'm selling them at the bare minimum price. And I don't know, maybe people buy stuff all the time on Amazon. I don't know. You were selling 500 copies a day? Yeah. Do you mind me asking how much money you made from that? Practically nothing. I mean, um, I think I'd sold a total of 30,000 copies before Random House bought the rights. And then when they did, I had to stop doing my self-published version, right? So the, the price was 99 cents and I would get a third of that, I think. So I was getting like 33 cents per sale. So 500 copies, I guess I was getting, oh, it's pretty good, I guess uh, about 100 bucks a day-ish. I remember I posted it in September and I think it was January when Random House bought the rights. And during those four months, I sold about 30,000 copies. Wow, so it actually all happened really quickly from that. Yeah, it really did. Slow and then, and then very quick. It's one of those lightning in a bottle things where I'm like, well, I don't know what I did, right? Yeah, so was it strange to find yourself with representation and a publisher at that stage? Because you'd resigned yourself to not even seeking it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was really surreal. I didn't expect my life to go this direction. And I also, even at that point, I just assumed like, wow, The Martian is doing really well. I got really lucky. I'll probably make a little bit of money off of this and I can tell my friends at work about it. Then life will go back to normal. I never imagined it would be this phenomenon 
and that and then end up getting this blockbuster movie made and launching my writing career. So I'm extremely grateful that that happened. And, you know, I struggle with the imposter syndrome all the time. <laughs> Did you edit it much with the publisher? Not that much. My editor liked it pretty much the way it was. It was just line by line edits. It's like, oh, this sentence is clumsy or this paragraph is not really conveying this right. But there weren't any significant structural changes. Oh, interesting. Because it's not like perfecting a meal and, you know, you burn it once or twice and then the third time you get it right. You know, this is two years for your first book and three years for your second and then suddenly with your third, you know, after No Luck Before, you've got a massive deal, tons of readers and a Ridley Scott movie. It's it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that, it, it can't be overstated. A lot of that is luck. Okay. I wrote, I think I wrote a pretty good book, but the level of success that it got, a large part of it is just because things lined up such that it was a type and style of story that Hollywood was thinking uh, would be a good idea right at that time. Um, the Martian got green-lighted shortly after Gravity was in theaters and Gravity did really well. So the so studios are like, oh, okay, maybe a sci-fi thing. There's so much luck involved in a film adaptation. And a lot of the sales of The Martian, I have the film to thank. It's like a $100 million ad for my book. Something your your listeners would probably be more interested in, while, while it's probably fun for everybody listening to this to kind of vicariously ride along on my journey, what might be more interesting to know for them is that even after my success with The Martian, I had a bunch of failure. After The Martian, I was riding high and the publisher said, we want another book from you. And I said, okay, I've got this epic space saga. It's actually one of the other serials that I was working on on my website at the time. It's called Zhek, Z-H-E-K. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because that was initially announced as your, as your follow-up, right? Right. It was going to be my next book. And I was, I was so confident about this. I was like, this is going to be my magnum opus. This is going to be book one in a series and like the martian successful as it is that's going to be seen as my the hobbit but now jack is going to be my big thing this is going to be what's incredibly successful this is my like, game of thrones and space kind of thing tons of plots tons of characters all this interesting crap going on all over so like a space opera style sci-fi so I spent a year working on it. I got about 70,000 words into the manuscript. For reference, The Martian is about 100,000 words long. And once I was 70,000 words and a year into this project, I was looking at it and I said, oh, um, this sucks. It wasn't any good. The plots were too complicated. The characters were not interesting. The story was going nowhere. It was just this meandering mess of plot lines that no rational human could keep track of. And there was no way to pare it down or streamline it because it was just, just it's an epic tale. And so all these other things need to happen or I'm not telling that story. And it's just nothing was working. Nothing was clicking together. I was still in the first act. So it's going to be this 900 page tome that no one would want to read or something. So did you show it to your agent or editor? I had been sending them chapters as I wrote it. And so I was feeling like, I don't see how this can be saved. And so I, I told my editor, I said like, hey man, I would like to just back burner check the entire project. I would just like to basically hit the big red reset button and write a completely different book instead. And at that point, by the way, I'm under contract on this. They've given me the advance, you know? And so I said, like, I want to write a completely different book for you. Is that okay? And I'll need, by the way, another year on my deadline, please. And they said yes, because they also knew that Jack wasn't working. Wow. They'd been reading the chapters. 
and they knew that I was really struggling with it. So that sucked. I mean, that was a real low for me coming off the success of The Martian, then getting to the point where I had to basically abandon a book with my publisher's enthusiastic support because it just wasn't working. Do you think you persisted longer with Sheck because you were under contract? Do you think maybe if you'd just been doing your own thing, you'd have kind of figured out what was wrong with it or that there was something ultimately wrong with it earlier? I don't think so. I think I persisted with Jack because I really believed in it. And it took me a long time to realize that it just wasn't working. And also I felt I still, I came away from that feeling like Jack still is an awesome story concept. I'm just not a good enough writer to tell it. It's such a complicated and detailed story and requires a lot of character nuance and stuff. And I still, to this day, feel like the reason Jack failed was because I'm just not a good enough author to portray such a complicated story and keep it flowing along nicely. You know, I was working on Jack right away. And within a year of my success on The Martian, I was feeling like a complete incompetent hack. You know, I was in that mode of thinking, I've had my one good idea. Yeah. And I suppose, I suppose that feeling never really goes away. But I mean, it's, it's oh, just no. to hear it phrased as in, oh, I just realized that I wasn't a good enough writer. Because to that, I would say, you know, every, everybody has their different strengths. The Martian and Project Hail Mary, their strength seemed to me to be, you know, character and, and, and dialogue and these like wonderful space stories that are, but they're quite like character centric. And they, they have these wonderfully zippy main characters who you really, really want to spend time with in amongst this complex terminology. So I, I wonder well, if you were you. just, you know, writing the wrong book for you rather than not good. I was it. definitely writing the wrong book for me. And still to this day, I feel though, I, you know, I feel like a failure because I, it, I wasn't the right writer for that book, you know. But the, there is a silver lining to this story, which is that I basically, sh oh, wait, no, there's still more dark times to go through. So after, um, after I shelved Jack, I wrote Artemis, and I felt a lot better about it. And Artemis, I, 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 it's a cohesive story. I thought it was good, uh, you know, and I was thinking I was going to launch, I mean, I wasn't writing for it, but in the back of my mind, I was thinking Artemis itself, a city on the moon with a lot of interesting people in it, that could be a setting for a, a whole series of books. Yeah. I had ideas to write many books that take place in that city with different main characters, every book and stuff like that. And I thought for sure this would be, uh, once again, I thought like, okay, this will be my thing. Like I'll be, you know, Artemis, I wanted Artemis to be my Discworld, right? I wanted it to be like, oh, this is my little playground and I can build it up book after book after book and it'll get more rich and detailed. And somebody who's a minor character in this book is the main character in another book. So when you're reading the book where he's a minor character, the, the whole world will just seem so rich and detailed because you're like, oh, I know all, I know that guy's entire history because I've been reading all these books. But Artemis didn't get nearly, nearly the good reviews that The Martian did. A lot of people didn't like the main character. I made her kind of too flawed, maybe a little unlikable. A lot of people just had a hard time rooting for someone who was so much the agent of her own um, problems. Mm. And so I got a lot of negative feedback. Most people say it's like, you know, on a five-star system, it's like a full star less than The Martian. And that made me feel bad because uh, once again, I was like, wow, I thought I'd done a great job and it's just not getting a lot of good reaction. And it just felt like, I mean, it's not a dud. It was very successful commercially, but I think anything I wrote after The Martian was going to be successful commercially. Mm. But and it's interesting that you're, you know, because 
you've connected so well with readers before, despite yeah. having then been traditionally published and, you know, made quite a splash, your, your key concern is still, well, are people enjoying this as much as they enjoyed? The well, yeah, of course, that's, that's my job. <laughs> and I, I, I felt really bad about it because it reinforced every little insecurity I had. You know, first off, I'm like, okay, maybe The Martian was the only good idea I'll ever have. Second off, maybe I'm not a good writer and maybe The Martian wasn't even that good. Just people liked the fact that it was, you know, decently good. And the story of this self-published guy, like the backstory of The Martian itself made them root for me as an author so much. But now that I'm an established author and part of the system, now I'm under the normal scrutiny that real authors go under and I'm not measuring up. You know, mm. it's a it's a bad feeling. But now I will tell you the silver lining of all this misery. Yeah, um, as it came time to write my third book, I kept thinking about Jack, and I'm like, okay, Jack didn't work. But there are some little nuggets of things in Jack, some concepts, some very cool ideas that I had. So I used Jack for parts. So Jack had, among other things, a, a fuel that was in Jack. It was a technology, but it had this fuel called black matter. And it, was, um, it would absorb any electromagnetic radiation, any light, and absorb it and turn that energy into mass. And then it would store it as mass until you wanted to use it for propulsion. Then it would turn it back into light and use light as propulsion. With that kind of spaceship fuel, if that existed, it follows all the laws of physics. If you had something like that, you could easily travel to Mars with like a few hundred kilograms of fuel, as opposed to modern spaceships where 98% of the entire mass of the ship is just the fuel to get there. And I, I thought, man, that's neat. Maybe I should just write a story about just black matter. And that, and, and I'd say, like, it'll, it can take place modern day. I don't need this gigantic, epic aliens, all the crap. Like, it'll just be people on Earth, modern day, acquire or discover black matter, and they start doing stuff with it. And then I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. There's no way that we could invent something like that with current technology. So they would have to find it. And if they find it, the only explanation is aliens, right? And then it's like, why is it here? What is it doing here? And why? And then I'm like, well, black matter, it takes energy and makes more black matter out of it. That sounds kind of like energy and make more humans out of it. So I thought, well, what if it wasn't a technology? What if it was a life form? And then I'm like, why does it need all this energy? And I thought, well, I want, as the author, I want to use it to propel myself through space. So maybe that's what this life form needs it for. I'm like, okay, so it's an alien life form that can travel through space. It's a microbe. Okay, why does it travel through space? And where does it get all that energy? And I'm like, oh, it doesn't live on planets. It lives on stars. So I thought like, oh, okay, this is just like some organism that lives there. And I was imagining, okay, so imagine humans got a, a hold of some of that, and then we could breed it up in farms and use it. And this maybe is another story about Mars or something. And then I'm like, oh, that, but they'd have to be really careful not to let any of it get into our sun, because then it would breed out of control. And that'd be a disaster. We can't have that. And I'm like, wait a minute, of course we can have that. Disasters are where stories come from. That's what we have. Okay, forget <laughs> all that other crap. New plan this microbe is only discovered because it's destroying our sun. There we go. Now we have an existential threat to humanity mm -hmm. and the existential threat itself gives us interstellar spacecraft fuel. So that was the click. I, I never cease to be amazed um, at how stories evolve like this from little nuggets that expand in the wrong way and then yeah. get drawn back in and expand in a different way. It's fascinating. Oh, thank you. And yeah, so that was, and then I'm like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. And also the character of uh, Strat, she is 
probably one of the three most important relevant characters in the book. Mm. And she's kind of the person in charge of creating and building the Hail Mary and finding a way to save humanity. And she's a, a no-nonsense person who has been put in charge of literally saving the world. And mm. that character, a character very much like that, was in Jack. I took her and made her a principal character in, in uh, Project Hail Mary. So I just kind of plucked a couple of really good things out of Jack and left all the crappy stuff behind. And so there is a, you know, kind of a happy ending to the story. I feel very confident about Jack and I don't feel confident about anything. So I feel like, uh, I'm sorry, not Jack, Project Hail Mary. Yeah. I, I feel like it's going to do well. I feel like people are going to like it. And I feel like I made a good cohesive story. That story came from the failure of Jack. It's interesting to hear you be repeatedly self-deprecating because one of Mark Watney's key qualities in The Martian, um, and I am aware that you are Andy, not Mark, but one of his key qualities is that he is insanely optimistic. I mean, rarely does he pity himself. He very occasionally thinks of how things must be down on earth for his parents, thinking he's dead. But he's mostly just interested in how he, in figuring out how he might survive. Very occasionally he thinks, oh, I've, you know, I'm completely fucked. I think you say (laughs) one chapter and then you begin the next chapter with, okay, I was having a bit of a tantrum. I'm okay. (laughs) And it's it's actually a very clever, clever um, way to end and begin chapters. But he is not self-deprecating. And actually, I wondered when I was rereading Bits of the Martian before this interview, whether you have this quality that he has, which is to see the bright side of things and to just plow on. I would say yes. I I am a very optimistic person, especially when it comes to large-scale humanity. Like, I honestly think that humanity is awesome, and we're constantly making the world a better place for everyone. Pick any year in history, then imagine the year 100 years before that. Which one of those two years would you rather live through? You will almost always prefer the more forward year, right? Mm -hmm. And that is because, as a species, we make the world a better place constantly. I've also been told that um, one of the translators for Project Hail Mary, I I think it was French, made a whole bunch of lists of like questions and and comments and stuff like that. It's like, oh, uh, this is like an an English language idiom. So we're going to change it to this other thing, just so you know. And oh, and this character is French and speaking French. So we're going to change him. We'd like to change him to be some other nationality so that the language that our readers see is a genuinely different language than French, you know, because that won't work, you know, <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. And, but one thing is there's a part of the book where someone says, oh, well, even if this project works, I mean, Earth is going to have to go through like 26 years or so of reduced sunlight and massive, like potential food chain collapses and maybe, you know, even famine and stuff like that. And another character says like, well, humanity has overcome some pretty big stuff in the past. We'll get through this too. Right. Mm-hmm. And the translator just kind of like highlighted that part of the text and said, American. <laughs> like, just like, <laughs> just... <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> I, guess, I guess Americans are seen as optimistic. Yes. Can I ask you a little bit before we go about your writing process and about whether that's evolved over your. Well, I hit these little keys, these buttons. <laughs> And then uh, that turns into letters in my document. And, no. uh, well, I mean, the hardest thing for me is writing the first draft, which obviously is 
well, that's just really obvious, but um, like, I really, really enjoy the research. I love doing the research. I love figuring out the plot, the actual writing of the first, and, and I love editing. I, I love the editing process, uh, but writing the first draft is just the hardest part. It's, it's a lot easier to paint a house than it is to build a house. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I tell to authors is imagine you weren't an author. Imagine you were a sculptor. Right. And you're driving along one day and you see this perfect piece of marble out in the middle of a field. And you realize that this would be a, a great piece of marble to make a statue out of. And you you buy it from whoever owns it and you get a bunch of friends together or whatever you, you, or actually, no, you have to do it yourself. You have to get a winch and everything like that to put it in a truck. And then you have to drive it to your studio. And then you have to do a bunch of like backbreaking labor and grunt work to get the thing into your studio. And now it's finally in your studio and you've got your hammer and your chisel. That whole section there, that was the equivalent of writing a first draft. Mm. Your story now is still just a lump that needs a lot of work, mm. but you've done the backbreaking part. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel that anything positive came out of either rejection or your experience of say Artemis not doing as well as you hoped? I mean, any of these negative experiences? Well, the only positive thing is this begrudging positive uh, acknowledgement that, you know, it made me a better writer because I pay attention to the to the feedback from the readers. It's important to me, especially people who didn't like it. There's no way you're never going to please everyone. There's always going to be a group of people who just aren't into the sort of stuff you write. So it's not the right attitude to go like, oh, this one person didn't like my book. I must work tirelessly until they do. No, but if you see trends in the feedback, then that probably means it's something I should listen to and pay attention to. And so I learned things from Artemis. Uh, the, big, the biggest lesson I took from Artemis was your character can be flawed, but if they're too flawed, then, then the reader will kind of stop rooting for them. Mm. So it's okay to make somebody flawed as long as you don't make them unlikable. Yes, I suppose we always need to be able to root for someone to some degree, don't we? Okay, so last but not least, Andy, apparently you have a fear of flying, which seems unusual for somebody who writes almost exclusively about space travel. I, uh, I write about brave people. I'm not one of them. You have to realize it has nothing to do with logic or common sense. I know that planes are incredibly safe, much safer than any other form of travel, but I'm still just terrified. And whenever I'm doing events or whatever, I just make sure everybody knows, hey, if I need to travel by air to get to your event, I have to show up the day before because I'm going to be a zombie the whole day that I fly because I'm, I took all these pills. <laughs> Did by the way, guys... these are prescribed by a doctor. This is not from like the guy on the corner, <laughs> you know. <laughs> did you go in the end to see The Martian being made? I did not because they shot it in Budapest. Right. And I didn't want to fly there. <laughs> <laughs> did you go to the premiere? Yes, I did. NASA invited me to Johnson Space Center in Houston to do a bunch of VIP tours hang out in the mission control room, meet astronauts and stuff like that. And I'm like, I have got to go to this. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm going to find out a way to fly. So what really motivated me to fly was the reward of being able to spend a week, spending all day going to different parts of NASA's main campus. Mm -hmm. And that was awesome. It was every absolutely worth it. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. I hope you've enjoyed it. 
Um, if you do have a chance to leave a review or rating, I'd really appreciate it. You can do that in your podcast app and it really helps people find the podcast. Plus, it just makes me feel good, to be honest. Guests still to come on the podcast include Catherine Heine, Julian Fellows, Anne Napolitano, Alex Wheatle, Michelle Roberts, Harry Parker, Phoebe Morgan and Douglas Stewart. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Francesca Steele with an E at the end. So do come over and say hello. Hopefully see you there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 